This is the People Podcast, bringing you the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to create a world-class workforce. Awesome. Well, today we have a really special episode of the People Podcast sponsored by Humanly. Uh, This podcast topic is basically going to be developing and maintaining inclusivity in the workplace. We have an all-star lineup. Uh, I'm going to let everyone else speak for themselves and do some intros. Lisa, I'm going to start with you. If you could give a quick overview of your background. Sure. I am a psychologist and executive coach and an organizational consultant. Both do individual executive coaching work with mid-level and senior level executives and also do organizational consulting regarding leadership and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm based in New York. Cool. Eric? Yeah, my name is Eric Armstead. I'm from Sacramento, California. Went to the University of Oregon. Then just finished my fifth year with the San Francisco 49ers. Awesome. Yeah. And Eric's also an advisor to Humanly, which is exciting, uh, which leads us to our next guest, Prem, if you want to give a quick intro over your background. Thanks so much for having me, Jesse. Uh, really great group here. Really excited to be talking about all things um, diversity. Yeah. So we've been uh, working on Humanly.io for the last year, focused on adding equity as well as efficiency to the hiring process. Awesome. And last, but certainly not least, Tim, if you could give a quick intro to your background. Super excited to be on the podcast today. My name is Tim Salau. I'm the CEO of Guide, which is the bite-sized, just-in-time training platform for remote distributed teams. And I have been leading the discussion around the future of work for quite a few years now. So I'm super excited to be a part of this conversation with you all. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for the intros. Uh, I'm going to start off with uh, Lisa and Tim. Question for you guys. Um, what are some things like at a high level that like organizations can do to like increase inclusivity across the organization? I think tech companies have historically struggled with this. Lisa, if you want to start off. Sure. Um, so I guess, you know, <laughs> what I think about when I think about it at a high level, one of the things I think that is most important is that these changes need to be structurally kind of input into like into the system like this these can't be one-off experiences they need to be really thought about and structurally and systematically change the organization so we're not talking generally like i think still think dni anti-bias training these are helpful however um, it is also really important to, to look at the institutional issues that impact the reasons why organizations are not diverse and really begin to make systemic institutional changes. Um, so I do think if at the high level, that's what I like to see when I see an organization making changes, that they are making very conscious policy, procedure, rule changes in the organization to, the, to shift the dynamics. That's great. And what, what are things like, to follow up on that, like that companies can do to actually incentivize that, right? Because I think it's easy to like just uh, kind of put it out there as like, oh, we'd like to be diverse and inclusive in the workplace, but like what can leaders do to really make sure that actually is executed throughout the organization? Well, I think it's really important that if there are DNI councils and advisory boards, that they are taken very seriously, that there are senior leadership on those boards, that there are diverse boards, the boards themselves are diverse, and that they are respecting care about diversity and show that through the ways in which they behave and, and are, you know, are representative or not. So I do think it's really important that senior leadership is involved and that there are really active um, ways in which people can structurally make these changes and that, you know, you're not left to one or two people or to an, you know, an employee resource group that wants to make changes but can't, you know, really, really senior leadership has to be involved in the change making process. That's great. Tim, I would love to hear your thoughts on this too. Just obviously all your experience in the future of work uh, and obviously it's such a hot topic right now. What do you think organizations can do to increase top of the funnel and like low level funnel inclusivity across the organization? Yeah, you know, I, I've definitely seen firsthand how, you know, especially large enterprise organizations, they focus and optimize around diversity, but they forget the operational definition of what inclusion means. And that's really bringing inclusive thought, inclusive hiring, inclusive perspective to your hiring process. So, for example, most enterprises, you know, think of the Microsoft, the Googles, you know, they thrive on what's called referral based hiring. Right. So you get hired in this product management role and you're a white male, whatever. And if you can refer someone else, it's just as good to you or went to the same institution as you bring them in. We want that kind of talent. 
right? And that's actually not a very inclusive way of hiring, if you think about it, because it's only optimized around the network effect of if you went to Yale or if you're in this specific role, we want you to bring maybe someone else that you've worked with in a prior role or that you feel as if you can vouch for, right? And then we'll bring them in through our process. When a different way to maybe potentially look at it and think about how do we approach inclusivity from the ground up is, let's say that same person, junior product manager, or senior product manager, but have them try to refer someone from a different division, right, that doesn't look like them for an opportunity, right, or someone that they've never necessarily worked in the same role function with, right? Those are things, those are like really just very tactical strategies for you to start rethinking how you approach hiring from the ground up. And I think it also goes back to me personally. I think cultural virtues or values that you define, whether it be at a divisional level or holistically at an organization level. For me, I'm an organizational designer. And I've realized that most organizations struggle with inclusive hiring because it's really just not a cultural thing. It's just, it's not something that they thought of thought of from day one. And for us, even at Guide, you know, from day one, uh, being a, a minority-owned business, we have a d- diverse advisory board. We're thinking about how we're going to have a d- diverse, you know, investor board. Like we're thinking about how are we vetting from day one that every part of our ecosystem, our company is diverse and inclusive in mind. So like those conversations, you know, for most organizations in the past should have happened on day one. But I think now in the in the cultural climate that, that we're living in, you're now having the conversations happen within enterprises. And definitely, um, if you're a smart startup, you should be doing the same. So for me, I think it's, it's just completely like from the get-go, from day one, saying, are we approaching hiring, recruiting, developing our board from an inclusive lens? Or is it a matter of we'll just go with the motions? Who decides to invest in our company? We'll go with it. Who we decide to bring in? We'll go with it. I don't think you want to have that kind of uh, free flow type of approach to, to building any organization now or in the future. Wow, that, that was a great answer. Um, lot to unpack there. I'd actually, I, I totally agree. I think, especially with small startups, when you have referrals early on, and that's how most companies scale their teams, it's really not an inclusive hiring funnel, right? You're, yeah. You went to Stanford, I'm referring people to in my alumni group from Stanford or Harvard or Yale or wherever, um, which actually kind of segues really nicely into to Eric would love to hear. I know you're involved heavily with the Armstead academic project, which is maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Um, and I think it ties in really nicely to inclusivity and hiring in general. Yeah. So uh, my mission and our mission with the Armstead academic project is to provide e- equity in our public education system. I didn't think it was fair that based on, you know, where you live, uh, that was a determining factor of whether you will receive an adequate education or not. And the disparities between schools in impoverished neighborhoods and schools in affluential neighborhoods is a glaring difference. And so that's what I try to, and that's what we try to provide is, is opportunity and even out that playing field. And uh, one of the big things that I see working with students in these communities is that um, I, I believe that, you know, you have to believe it. You have to believe it, see it to achieve it. And in companies and corporations and uh, the, these jobs being underrepresented and you're, you know, in, in the community, you don't see people that look like you uh, having these opportunities and having these jobs, then you don't believe it personally that you can achieve it. And so we work with students who never really leave their environment, never really leave their neighborhood. And all they see day in and day out is um, people that look like them, you know, not doing really much with their lives. They don't see people that look like them in position of power, high paying jobs and leadership roles. And so they don't never think they never think that they can achieve it because they haven't seen it be done. And so uh, I think it's important to work on it from from both ends you know, make sure that the education is uh, improving, uh, that there's equity in the system and that those students are receiving quality education. That way they can go on um, and, you know, earn high paying jobs and take care of their family. But also from the company and corporation side, putting people in position of power uh, that look like 
kids that come from these communities and so that they can believe that they can one day uh, be in that same role in the future. Yeah, that's, that's great. I'm, it's a really empowering project that you're working on. And yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with you in terms of it definitely makes a huge difference what your education is and, and everything else throughout your life. Because if you come from an, an underprivileged background, generally you don't have as many opportunities. You go to, let's say, a state school and there's nothing wrong with that. But the issue becomes is a lot of these high paying jobs, these hiring managers have this false pretense that you need to go to an elite university. And, and because of that, there's not as much diversity in that hiring funnel. So that's great. Prem, I, I want to loop you in here. Uh, anything to add uh, in terms of like what organizations could do to increase inclusivity across the board, whether it's underprivileged backgrounds or, yeah, love to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think it is a, an across the board thing. Um, so everything from leadership uh, to your board, um, to your investors, um, you know, companies are starting to ask their investors and, and, even, um, you know, firms that they work with, how diverse they are. So I think holding your whole kind of circle accountable, um, that, that's definitely one big way. Um, inclusion is huge. So having a diverse uh, team is not just about hiring for it, um, but it's also about providing an inclusive environment so everyone can thrive. So we do a lot um, humanly to, to help people on the um, to screen and bring in new talent, but, but then inclusivity is such a, such a big part of that as well. Yeah, that's great. I, I definitely agree there. I, w- I wanted to add something here, which I think is important, um, yep, which is that ahead, I think we're talking, so we're talking about this idea of like, um, you know, underrepresented, underprivileged, you know, youth, you know, black and brown people who may or may not get access to Ivy League universities. However, you know, the data is very pretty stark. And that shows that even black and brown people who get Ivy League education still make less some in less than white high schoolers. So I think it's really important to also recognize that the Ivy, you know, experience and, and these elite experiences also don't protect us from the other experiences that we're going to have with discrimination and pay and all kinds of other things around equity, that even that does not escape from this um, because it is, it is a really complex layered system and that the stuff around sort of privilege and the, these kinds of access to these things is not giving us equity even in pay, you know. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, that's fascinating. I completely, I completely agree with that. And you, you look at, we look at the statistics of college graduates and the median household income being lower than, um, well, for minorities, black and brown college graduates, the median household income being lower than um, white, you know, co- uh, high school dropouts. You know, you can see the the disparities uh, in the in the um, system right there. And so to your point, you know, I think um, it's, it's multi-layered and multi-complex and have to start taking a deep dive and stripping away, you know, why is this, why does this issue exist? Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a crazy time in the world right now. It's great to see a lot of voices being amplified. And um, one, one thing I do see see going forward is, um, you know, I see a lot of people leading with with action more so than just words. Um, particularly as I look at folks or um, folks on the podcast right now, Lisa and Eric. Um, so, so I think companies are going to begin to realize through all of this that diversity isn't just something nice to do, but more diverse companies are better co- companies. They have better bottom line. They represent their customers more effectively. Um, so I do think um, a lot of good can come out of all the, the conversation that's happened of late. Yeah, totally. Speaking of systems, I've obviously been really involved in hiring across a lot of organizations. And one of the things that always caught me off guard was, and I think it's important for CEOs to be involved in hiring for a long time, but uh, I won't name any organizations or anything uh, for obvious reasons. But I think um, what's always kind of taken me aback is companies will go through and they'll have a diverse hiring process, but then the CEO will review candidates and they'll reject them based off of certain criteria like oh you know what they only went to san jose state or they only went to sacramento state or some state school and they'll reject them based off that because they have the final approval and so it's it's quite interesting because that would obviously lead to a less inclusive this person passed the interview process with flying colors and then was rejected by the ceo 
of a couple thousand person organization or 10,000 plus person organization um, because they didn't ma- match a certain criteria in this person's head. Yeah. I, you know, to, to your point, Jesse, I think, and, that, and I think therein lies the problem, right? Because we're actually moving towards a future where it's really going to be a more, more a matter of skills-based and competency-based hiring. And to a point where, you know, our lovely investors shared is that most organizations, like, Getting a great education does not shield you from the discrimination and microaggressions you'll face in corporate America. And I'm saying that as a black man that, you know, I have a master's, I have a bachelor's, I've accomplished what I could have accomplished in my in my short career. And I even faced microaggressions at the highest level of leadership in some of the greatest organizations in the world. And I think it goes to our point to these structural systemic changes, but also realizing that hiring is no longer a matter of um, really, you know, your where you went to school. It's a matter of what skills are you competent? And more importantly, in, in, in this world, is are you willing to learn? Right? Because if you actually even go to it, if you actually interview people, they're often leaving the last organization that they worked for to join your organization because they want to learn something new, not because they want to do exactly the same thing. Yet we have most organizations hiring based on, well, what did you do in your last job? And can you do that exact same thing in this job? Right, because you want to fill the role function, but really, if you actually talk to a candidate, and that we've all done interviews before, it's really well. I want to learn something with this organization, and I'm really interested in your culture and what your vision is, your mission, and your team makeup. So it's more so I'm interested in learning and acquiring new skills. I believe I'm competent for the role, and then more importantly, I think you're going to create the culture and infrastructure for me to succeed, and which is really the inclusion part. And that's where most organizations fail. Right. It's like you are you're not creating that infrastructure because you don't have the representation and you haven't thought about it from the ground up. Yeah. Great points. Um, Tim, to, to touch on one of your points. Um, yeah, there's a big push the last couple of years, at least for myself and I think some other leaders in the space to find and develop unfound talent. Um, and I hope that now that there's obviously a lot more skilled people that are unemployed given everything that's happened in the last six months that that push still continues because i feel like some of the best hires i've ever made or i've seen made by organizations have been people that were like those fringe candidates like maybe they're a vp maybe they're a director of xyz and they make that take that risk and that person becomes a superstar and so i hope that's the norm moving forward and doesn't you know resort back to we're just gonna hire this person because they've done it this way and they have they fit this square box square square hiring uh, hole per se. And I think that, I think that that's um, an interesting point because I think that one of the things that we have to though, contend with is human beings preference for similarity. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, they, they want people to fit into the square box because they understand the square box. And that can mean all kinds of things, right? It can mean around, you know, whether you look like me, whether you sound like me, whether you went to the same school, whether you have the skill set I recognize versus don't. And I think, you know, this is where I think training is helpful to kind of break and interrupt the human nature to kind of to kind of move towards similarity and and things that they recognize rather than difference. Yeah, the, psych- yeah. the psychology of hiring is fascinating. It's, so that last point, I think it's truly about those decision makers in those positions, the hiring positions, truly at their core, their core virtues being about exclusivity and you know, seeing everyone as equal. And to, to, to your point, it's, it's natural as a human, it's natural for as human beings to want to be comfortable um, and want to be around people that we know, people that look like us, people that, um, but it's uncomfortable and it's unnatural to get out of that comfort zone and want to expose yourself to different kinds of people, new experiences, and until we get into that train of thought, I don't think companies, I don't think our country, I don't think various areas of our society will function at full capacity. I feel like we're halting ourselves. We're halting ourselves by not being inclusive, by keeping people who can offer some amazing things to a company or to um, an organization uh, keep, by keeping them out. Yeah, I agree with you fully, Eric. Yeah, some really good points. Eric, I'm actually kind of leads to a question. I'm curious. I know the NFL has a, a really interesting interview process at like the Combine. What was that like in your experience? What you can share? The Combine was a crazy experience. You know, the NFL has 
just a strenuous interview process as the FBI, um, from what I've been told and what I've have experienced. Um, it's definitely they leave no, you know, no stone unturned. They're obviously investing a lot of money into uh, each player, and they want to know everything they can, and they have the resources to find out anything they pretty much want to. You know, I've heard stories of um, NFL teams calling players, elementary school teachers, and asking them about how they were like when they were young and uh, various different things. Um, I remember my combine experience, you know, something I never want to do again from psychology tests to 300-question surveys of trying to break down my psyche and what I rather questions like would I rather read a book, go to a play or I don't know, play video games or something. It's like it was, it was a crazy process. They definitely are very thorough and uh, they're going to find out pretty much anything they want to know. It definitely sounds like it's really challenging because it's obviously physical, physical, mental, uh, and a, a lot, a long process. It sounds like over the course of a week. So quite interesting. And I guess that ties into like the next question. Like, Obviously, it's been great to see like how vocal you've been on social media around like important topics like Black Lives Matter. What has like the support been for yourself, Eric, in terms of, like fans, the 49ers, and the NFL overall? What you can can say? I think the support has been great. You know, personally, you know, my kind of experience uh, through these things being a a black male has been up and down. You know, it's disheartening when people you know want to argue with you and try to justify um, certain things. And I feel uh, as, as a black man, um, a lot of black people have been crying out for help, for, for justice. And you get into arguments with people trying to justify and, uh, you know, instead of showing empathy and, and showing understanding for a fellow human being, I think that's the biggest thing is our world showing more empathy for one another lead, lead with empathy. I, I totally agree. Exactly. And, and, uh, you know, for me, I love to, to learn about other people's experiences and, and lifestyles. And, uh, I would say I'm unselfish in that way, um, that I have the ability to show empathy and compassion for others. And that's how I try to use my platforms. And that's what I preach. I preach humanity and empathy. And that's how I try to use my platform to, to share those messages, share some of my life experiences, share my own journey of dealing with my own biases and, you know, even some of the privileges I have have obtained in my life from being a well-known athlete. Um, that gives me a lot of privileges over other people. And uh, so I, try, I do a lot of self awesome. yeah. reflecting and self searching and, and try to share that with, um, you know, the people who follow me on my platforms. Yeah, sports has such a huge influence on bringing people together. So I'm actually looking forward to uh, hopefully we have sports this fall. Fingers crossed. And it sounds like the 49ers are doing a, a good job. And obviously, they in, in, in inclusivity, uh, I think they hired the first female assistant coach, Katie Sowers. Is that right? I think it was the first or second. I have to look at the, the data. But yeah, that's awesome. I guess let me also say, um, you know, I know people are looking forward to sports and I love sports too. I was an athlete in high school. But, you know, I also do think a lot of people are also talking about how part of the reason why, you know, the racial uprising has happened is because we don't have diversions like sports, like other things going on, and there hasn't been a way to escape sort of the tension that's going on. I do think it's important to really think about when life does resume back to normal, will we still be committed to, the, to these actions in the same way? And so I do think it's really about really recognizing the ways in which some things serve as a diversion from really making, you know, commitments to like ongoing, really painful, you know, change. And so I do think it's important, you know, like while we all look forward to kind of being able to resume the normality of life, you know, not letting go of this moment and what it can mean to really making significant changes in our society. I 100% agree. Uh, I think I said this before, even we were seeing what was going on in our country uh, in terms of of uh, the protest and the murder of George Floyd and others. You know, I said it when the pandemic happened. I hope we from a society, when we get back to a quote unquote normal, can learn and grow and be better from this experience. And I hope 
uh, as a society, we all take a uh, personal responsibility to be better on the other side of these things and, and not go back to just the, you know, what we were doing before. Definitely, definitely agree. Um, yeah, I hope it's not just a, a temporary thing as well. Um, hopefully there's some lasting change, um, kind of like what I was talking about earlier in regards to really opening up in a diverse hiring funnel uh, and trying to find unfound talent. I, I hope that a few of these these things that are trending right now continue uh, in the right direction and don't become take a backseat when we when things go back to normal, when we're no longer in lockdown and there's no longer protests going on. So totally agree. Really appreciate the insights, Lisa and Eric there. Prem, Tim, anything to add to that? No, I'm really interested because, you know, um, this has been such a lovely conversation. So thankful to be a part of it. But it, I think now that we're in a remote first world or a digital by default world, as some people are calling it, this is actually really fascinating because a lot of organizations have to truly, they can't really even argue anymore that uh, we have a diversity problem because now there's like this grand opportunity to completely shift the lens of hiring to okay, how do we build more distributed teams? Now that we're remote first, that's an advantage. It cuts down on operational expenses. So everything that we should see in terms of how hiring has been awful, especially in the tech arena for the last 20 to 20 plus, 25 years, it's been very elitist. It's been very prejudiced. It's been very biased. Now in the digital by default world, we should see change and incremental progress that sleeps and bounds what we've seen in the last five years. And I'm really interested to see, because I do believe that we do need more compassion um, and empathy around this topic, but also like this is the change, like change should happen now. And if in the next two to three years, we continue to see a lot of companies drive and talk about their metrics, but we're not really seeing that incremental change, we'll then realize that it really was never a matter of we can't find the talent or it's a pipeline problem. It's more so as you've, d- you've designed an organization that doesn't want to change because it's it, it thrives on homogenous ideals and not really thinking about you know growth from an inclusive lens. And I, I'm really interested to see what what happens because you know I, we've all been a part, we've all seen the conversation from a lot of other companies and even around the Black Lives Matter movement. You know them bringing out these statements and all of these promises in terms of the NI numbers, but now like. With the, the landscape of things, hiring should change, and it must. So I, I'm just excited to see what um, the types of transformation we, we see in the next three to five years, personally. Yeah, I completely agree with Tim. I mean, we're, we're definitely um, seeing um, huge changes emerge. Um, you know, I think COVID-19 in many ways began to catalyze some of these trends around remote work, things that are happening anyways. Um, I do think, you know, you cannot change what you do not measure. So with the data available today, there's just so much more we can look at from an employee engagement standpoint, from, uh, of course, from a diversity standpoint, but also from an inclusion standpoint. Um, Are you helping your employees reach their potential? Um, So I think all those trends will well, you know, there's also a lot of other trends around career movement and folks maybe staying in, in companies for less period of time. And I, I think in many ways, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think if you're able to maximize the impact that someone has in your organization while you have them, that's often better than just keeping them a little longer. And, you know, as companies have access to tools, part of maximizing that impact is through inclusion. Um, so hiring a diverse team, but then providing them with the platforms and tools to be able to execute at a high level. Yeah, those are excellent points. Kind of leads to the next question, which is like, what are like some of the major roadblocks that companies are going to have in creating and hiring more diverse teams, especially like once, like as Lisa and Eric, as you guys mentioned, like once we get past like a COVID-19 world, like how and some of these issues kind of fade into like a distant memory per se, not that they're not important. I think they're definitely important, but like how can companies still make sure it's a priority and overcome the roadblocks that they're going to face, whether it's just a deprioritization or we're focusing on some other initiative. Prem, you want to kick that that up? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I feel that leadership, both at, at the executive level, inclusive also of the board is extremely important. And I think you have to have representation to be able to kind of drive forward um, diversity in your company. I mean, there's some great examples right now. So Pepsi, for instance, instead of, you know, just trying to, 
throw hiring resources on bringing more, more diverse talent. They've actually made a, a pledge or a commitment to actually increase the amount of Black managers they have, I think, by like 30% or something like that. And they've also invested, I think, $50 million in, or they plan to invest $50 million in Black-owned businesses over the next five years. So I think from a leadership standpoint, it's important to, you know, not not just invest in in smaller fixes, um, but invest in, you know, how do you structurally create an organization that's more diverse, that works with companies that are more diverse, that, you know, has people in, you know, middle management positions that are more diverse. So it really is kind of a an overhaul in some ways to get there. Um, and it's more than just kind of taking these small steps. So it's, it's great to see a lot of companies buying into that um, as well right now. Yeah, those are great points. I think to add to that, people create systems. Systems don't create themselves. People create companies. Companies don't create themselves. And so it really starts at an individual level of it being important to the leaders of that company to ensure that that is a priority for the company or the organization. I think until we get to that point where people are real with themselves and they care about it on a personal level, um, individual level, then you'll start to see that transpire and rub off on their company. And that will change the hires, that will change uh, the culture because um, that's really what what it's about is the culture of the organization. And that culture starts with the leadership and how they think and how they feel uh, personally on an individual level. I agree. I want to just piggyback on what Eric is saying and what Premis said too about how it is so person it is so important to take personal responsibility in this, you know, and not leave it to something else, leave, not leave it to a DEI committee, not leave it to somebody else, but that every sort of person in an organization has responsibility to actually uphold a desire to have a more diverse, you know, environment. Um, and I, you know, as a coach. I, you know, I see, you know, when my clients feel a sense of shame about an an embarrassment and I can look at sort of the ways in which they have perpetrated this and really can take ownership of that and begin to say like, oh my God, I, I recognize that I've been playing a part in this and I've been really blatantly like hiring just white people. And can really be like, what am I going to do to change this? And how am I going to change my systems? And how am I going to change the way that I'm dealing with my people organization? And, you know, what am I going to do to make this different and take some personal responsibility about the ways in which they themselves are going to act? You know, that's when I know they're going to make a difference. Like if it's like, oh, now, now I'm being told I need, I need to kind of bring in, you know, more diverse hires because there's a DEI initiative. I don't, that's not going to stick. But when I see people actually, you know, feel committed because they see themselves in the ways they perpetrated these things, I, I see change happen and I see sustaining change happen. Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, one of the, the most like innovative ways I've found one of the companies, this is a couple of years ago, one of our customers wanted to increase, uh, this is a publicly traded company, uh, about 5,000 people, and they wanted to increase their diversity across the organization. And they found the best way to do that was to start with their HR and recruiting team and hire people from diverse backgrounds there so that obviously the the gatekeepers, so to speak, to the hiring process come from unique and underprivileged backgrounds themselves so they can have a more diverse hiring funnel to begin with. So I think those are great points that kind of tie into that. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. Like the people in the HR and the hiring, they have interacted and been around a bunch of different kinds of people and so at the initial start of that process, um, they're comfortable with all different kinds of people. And that's going to lead into diversity. You know, if, if someone in that role isn't comfortable, hasn't really been around black and brown people um, and all they really know is, you know, what they know and the people they're comfortable with, then that's not going to lead to diverse hires. It's not going to lead to diversity that that you'll be in a situation where. It's just checking off part of the list like, oh, well, we got to hire uh, at least two of them. So let's check that off. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so my my brother is uh, in criminal defense. He's, he's a lawyer. And it, it's really interesting if you have a 
um, jury that um, is potentially biased or um, you have a member of the jury that has a reason to be biased towards you, you can make a recommendation to um, have a new jury or, or replace that member in the jury. Um, you know, the, the kind of same thing as you think about hiring. I mean, it, oftentimes if you don't have a diverse team of, of HR professionals, of recruiters, of recruiting coordinators, all of a sudden someone is in a panel um, with, with folks that are not necessarily, may have some unconscious bias. So, uh, uh, you know, it's not necessarily practical to suggest that candidates can pick who interviews them, but but I think it's a, a good lesson for companies to always be striving to, to ensure that, and, and maybe if, you know, the first round you realize that, hey, we didn't bring forth a diverse enough panel and maybe this applicant would have benefited from one, um, you can kind of bring that into the next steps in the interview process. And this, of course, goes beyond visible forms of diversity. Um, you know, one of the companies we work with, California Autism Center, um, spent some time chatting with them as well as other people that are in the space of, of working with, with students with autism. And, you know, folks with autism can tend to struggle on phone interviews. Folks that are blind, for instance, would struggle with video interviews when you're using AI to look at their facial expressions, which they don't have as much control over. So I think there's a lot of things you can do to, you know, hire people that do that, but also provide options and platforms um, for candidates that might want to go through the interview process in a slightly different way, um, while still be still being able to compare apples to apples at the end. So, so yeah, I, I think there's definitely, it's extremely important to have diversity in the hiring and, and, and the gatekeepers, so to speak, um, the hiring team. And then there's also things you can do with, with tools and whatnot so that candidates have options as they're applying. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are also really concrete things that can be done in the hiring process too, you know, that can help to prevent bias from occurring. So, you know, we know as a fact of research that, you know, people can determine oftentimes the race of a person by the sound of their voice, by the sound of their names. And these are ways in which they are automatically like sifted out of the pile. And so I think it's really important, you know, we know that blind resumes work. We know that, you know, these kinds of things work to kind of create more diverse opportunities, especially if the pipelines are diverse. And so there are things that we can do that people don't like doing. And they're very simple, but they don't like doing because it really doesn't allow them, like, like earlier, like Tim was saying, to make choices about preferential hiring for friends and relationships and connections. Um, but there are ways. And I think that, you know, we have to, and the, the research is out there, like, to kind of really embrace them and bring them into hiring processes. And, you know, be able to embrace the unfamiliar. Yeah, that's that's great. What can be done to make people feel like included in like an organization that's really large and has generally been like non-inclusive? Lisa, Tim, I'd love your guys' thoughts in that regard. I mean, I think you, you know, when we go in and we look at organizations, we often do a climate survey. So we kind of take a look at the organization and we let the organization tell us what's been going on. Because every particular situation is unique um, about why people feel excluded, and so you you know we typically want to hear from the from the members of the organization themselves, like what is happening that is making you feel excluded. I mean, it can be anything from the language, from way, the way people are talked about. Some people are talked about as like the field people versus the house people. Like there can be all kinds of ways in which like you know some people are connect elitism to to race. You know, even the way we were talking earlier about underprivileged, just because we're black and brown doesn't mean we're underprivileged, all of us. You know, and what does that really mean? Really, like the system underprivileged us. We didn't underprivileged. You know, so there's a lot of like ways in which we language stuff that, you know, can be isolated. So it's really about for, for us really taking a look at the organization and asking, you know, what is going on? in the organization that is making you feel that way and addressing it, right? Because I think oftentimes what we, we sometimes get back from leadership is defensiveness and like, well, like I, I get that, but you know, that's the way it's always been or, or, you know, you know, is this really a truly a problem? Like, and really being able to listen to what your, what your membership and your, your employees are saying to you about the ways they're feeling excluded and really target and address them um, and not just try to dismiss them because it's easier to kind of imagine it's a one-off or it's, you know, it's not that important or it's just a name or this or that and the other thing. So really kind of doing a bit of a listening process. Right. Kind of a appeal to tr tradition fallacy. That's what it sounds like some of the feedback is. Tim, what are your thoughts? For me, I get emotional talking about this topic because I've seen it up close 
as a black male working in tech, whereas it's half part a leadership problem, half part, you know, leaders and organizations failing to really grow those people of color. And really the conversation is always around diversity, which is where I often like being part of these conversations where it's focused on inclusion because diversity, I don't think is actually the reason why we're, we're not seeing the metrics or the numbers go up. It's truly because that you try to bring people in and they just can't stay because the environment actually dictates more if they stay, if they grow, and if they feel welcome, if they feel like they belong. So I think the the best strategy we can do is actually we, we have to change the way leadership looks and in terms of the representation of leadership at all levels. And I think, you know, the, the biggest thing that we can advise leaders within large enterprises to do today is that be representative of the change that you want to see within your organization and then more intentionally cultivate that like a beautiful garden, right? You don't want to just have red roses everywhere. You want to have a variety of different, you know, types of roses and plants, right? That's what inclusion looks like, right? And you as a leader of a division of a large enterprise, you have to actually cultivate that. And that's really, really hard because you have, most enterprises have the momentum of 10, 15, 20 plus years of very elitist bureaucratic thinking and how they've designed their organizations. So for you to challenge power in that way of say, rethink things from the ground up, it's almost like, oh, no, no, let's, let's, let's phase it out a little bit or uh, no, no, let's just make a donation, right? You're challenging norms at a very um, psychological level. Can I ask you a pointed question? Yeah, of course. Man. There's been a, a bunch of uh, talk lately about uh, venture capital and trying to be more inclusive in basically funding black founders. And I know, I know you're actively raising a seed round. What has your experience been like over the last month? I'm just curious anecdotally. Yeah, no, that's a powerful question. When I've been pitching and, and raising capital, it's been very, how do I say this? I haven't faced microaggressions up front, right? You won't see it up front when I'm having conversations with investors about our business, our roadmap. But you do see that it's a surprising that you meet a black man that's just not interested in building a company or a platform for people of color, right? They're, a black man is actually interested in, in building an enterprise level organization and a business that it doesn't matter what color you are, anyone can learn, right? So you often, like, I think they're often caught um, by surprise by, oh, like, this is someone that's actually trying to build a business that can actually conquer, you know, a market that goes beyond just people of color. And I think one, that shouldn't necessarily be a surprise, but also I think if you don't see it up front, you don't know what they're talking about behind, you know, the closed doors when it comes down to conversations with other partners who don't look like a black founder, right? Like I think when we're, when we're talking about raising capital and this is, I, I put a, a really pointed post on LinkedIn about, you know, most VC firms shouldn't try to create just a, a, a fund for people of color challenging us and recognizing us as if we're just a charity case. Because the worst thing from racism and elitism is tokenism, right? That's actually an issue as well. And when we when I started seeing so many funds and VCs put out these statements saying, oh, we're just going to create a fund for Black people, as if Black people only deserve $5 million to you know start a business when you're investing and, you know, founders who aren't black and you're investing about $10 million just at a seed round and they don't even have a, a profitable business yet. Right. So, like, I, you, you see all these disparities and um, how I think the venture capitalist system treats black founders and then how people of color go into enterprises and they get mistreated as well. And I think that we, we don't want to continue creating these systems where we're actually closing in black people from actually being treated as equal. Right. And I think we that's why I always often love to have conversation around what do you actually define as equity? What does equity actually look like within the organization? What does inclusion actually look like? Because you'll see that a lot of white men in positions of power don't really know how to define that. Right. So I think, you know, that, that's a problem question you ask. But for me personally, when, when I've been fundraising, you know, I've had, I think, cordial and very mature conversations but beyond that, I don't know what's set about our business or me as a leader behind our back. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. I want to touch on one of those points, Tim. I think it needs to be talked about a lot more is the surprise factor. I think being black in 
uh, growing up in certain situations, people are surprised at the capabilities. I remember I had a, a, a English teacher when I was in high school, wrote a paper and she called my mom and was like, I'm so surprised how articulate Eric is. And that's a similar situation that you're talking about when you're trying to raise capital. Oh, we're so surprised that it's not uh, a company just for people of color. Like this, this, this actually, this is actually a, a good idea. It's surprising to them and because they're going into situations with preconceived notions and biases, the expectation is really low. And that's something that they're going to have to work on individually and, and strip that away. But I don't think that gets talked about enough, too, is the expectations for people of color in certain situations where people uh, are surprised that you actually did a good job. Yeah, Eric, I actually had a question for you. Um, going back to like inclusivity in, in the workplace, obviously you've played for a few, I think three different coaches, head coaches in the NFL. And obviously it, Coach Shanahan's done an amazing job kind of turning turning things around. What is, I'm assuming he's fostered a great culture inclusivity. Maybe you could talk about that and like how that culture has changed. Not to say it was bad before, but like how that's obviously from being a middle of the road team to the Super Bowl last year. Yeah, I think uh, from a coaching standpoint, They've done an amazing job. And I think that's where sports are kind, you know, sports are all competition based. So, you know, usually, typically the best players play uh, regardless of a race. And, you know, that changed, you know, some years in the past where obviously uh, black athletes were being excluded. And obviously you saw that the competition to win overtook that because good players were being excluded because of the color of their skin and people want to win at the end of the day. So it's like, okay, we got to include them if we want to win. So I think that that competition is the main thing in sports. Um, and, but from a coaching standpoint, I think Kyle and the organization have done an amazing job of including a, a diverse staff, you know, multiple experiences. We have an ex-player we have a female part of the LGBTQ community. Um, we have a coach. Um, we have a Middle Eastern coach. And so they've done an amazing job. And I think that's amazing to see. And it's amazing to, to play for a diverse staff that is, you know, can relate to multiple different backgrounds and lifestyles. Um, and it's great for me. And I'm sure it's great for the rest of my teammates to be coached by such a diverse, uh, such a diverse group. And we can all have, you know, amazing uh, relationships with them, learn from them and grow with them. So it's pretty amazing to see. Yeah, that's great. Thank, thank you for sharing. Cool. I know we got a, some short amount of time here left. So like, in, I love everyone's final thoughts on like, basically how leaders can ensure teams meet and exceed their hiring goals and, and D&I goals overall as an organization and actually exceed those and kind of make it part of their ethos as opposed to just what we've talked about. Like obviously don't want it to be tokenism or just a, something that's not really acted on. So would love, uh, love everyone's final thoughts on that. And then we can kind of wrap up from there. If anyone wants to go first. I have a novel thought, which is tied to their compensation. Um, if you tie it to their compensation, they will have skin in the game no matter whether they care or not. And, and some organizations already do this. It's tie both you know, the diversity of the hiring process and also advancement of um, people of color to their compensation. Lisa, if I may step in just to play like, I, I feel like some listeners are going to think this way, not uh, just to play devil's advocate here, sure. not to say that I agree or disagree. Uh, I think the tough part is like, there's a system in place where you have public companies and the only thing that matters is their quarterly earnings, right? Uh, uh, from like a, a, like a Mac, the very highest level, right? They, from just the business operation standpoint, they need to make revenue. And so it's almost like we need like a different system in place than uh, public like liquidity events. Like it's either easier for a private company to implement that than like if you're a VP of marketing, and you have this other initiative, it's like, which one's more important? And at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of companies are going to lean towards, they'll, they'll say one thing and then they'll lean towards like making the profit or the revenue. 
I guess I'm confused by your question because I mean, some of the companies that I know who do this are public. And are you suggesting, you know, just curiously that, you know, if you hire diverse teams that they're not going to be as bottom line effective? No, no. Like from a motivation standpoint, Mm -hmm. it seems like if you're publicly facing saying that your compensation is tied to DNI initiatives, yeah, I'm not saying your entire compensation, but bonus structure can be tied. All kinds of things can be tied to this. You, you have other reasons, other things you're trying to actually hit and targets you hit. It can be another valued target. Yeah, thanks for elaborating on that. I was just curious because I think, yeah, I think a, a lot of companies, what I'm saying is like people will say it from like a tokenism standpoint, like that we this is important. We're tying this to your compensation. But then if you're going to do your performance eval and it's like, oh, well, you, didn't, you missed your... Uh, your sales quota for the quarter, you're fired, but you nailed your DNI quota. You know what I'm saying? Like people have to choose which is more important for their careers. But typically, they're, they're not choosing that. Like when I see it done in organizations where it's done well, there are other metrics that they're using, and they're not they're not going. Oh well, I need to focus on my DNI hiring, so I'm gonna I'm gonna fail at my job. You know, they see it as integrative integrative into their process of of being an employee. There, it is a part and parcel of what they do. So it's not necessarily considered, oh, I can do one or the other. I can do both successfully. So I don't think it's an issue. Of, but I do think that, that you know, that's an interesting thought, you know, that, that it seems like you can either do one or the other, succeed economically or have a diverse team. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. Um, what are, question, like follow up on that. What are, like, what are ways that companies are implementing that? They're, they're tying it to bonus structure. So they tie, they tie sort of some, the, you know, the diversity of the hires, they tie, they tie the advancement process to that. So that they're getting points for doing that. So I do think, you know, it is, in, it does incentivize people who don't care. You know, like there's a lot of significant people in the, in the like I have been, I've done many DEI training where people will blatantly say to me, I take out people out of the pile because they don't fit certain criteria. Like they'll say that and they're being recorded and HR wow. is listening. And they say to <laughs> me, I take certain insane. people out of the pile and they don't care. Like they feel that empowered, that like, powerful that they can just, yeah, yeah, entitled to just do what they want to do. And so in some places you cannot just hope that people really get it and care about it. You also have to make it part of the reason why they are valued at the organization. That's great. So there, I I have really quick comments if you're still taking final comments, Jesse. Are you still taking Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm sure, I don't know if you all have uh, saw the news, how LinkedIn was having a town hall and they were talking about things that were going on around the Black Lives Matter movement. And then they were having, you know, there was someone that was anonymous in there in the town hall chat. And this individual actually was saying, you know, I'm scared that, you know, we focus on more diverse hiring and building a inclusive workforce that I, I might lose my job. So that like there was this huge um, pandemonium at LinkedIn and they had to make a press release to cover it all up and stuff. And I think why, what, why I bring that up is the fact that I think what, we can do and organizations can do is rid rid themselves of this culture of fear that happens in most organizations where because you're investing in inclusion or diversity, diversity and equity, that someone else or a group of people feel that their jobs or their livelihood is at risk, which is really sickening. So I think, you know, one, ridding your organization of that culture of fear is really, really important because I think now we're starting to realize that it's not just a, a matter of the numbers. There's really a lot of emotional trauma that people of color are facing being in environments that don't nurture them, their growth, and they have to leave. And more importantly, when you see white, your white counterparts who continue to thrive and continue to kind of reinforce these systems of elitism, right? So there's a lot of emotional turmoil that, and psychological turmoil, right? And I'm sure Lisa can speak to this, that organizations and leaders have to actually address because- not even just a matter of the, the metrics and the numbers anymore. It's psychological and it's emotional. And it's what's actually preventing um, organizations to transform and reform their, their workforce. I, I think it's a great point, Tim, because I think some of it is also unconscious, right? Um, like the guy at LinkedIn clearly, you know, had a conscious response and said the conscious response. But there are a lot of people who are having the same exact response um, unconsciously and are behaving in ways that they're not even aware of because they are afraid that increasing diversity will mean that they, they don't, there's, they're going to, you know, 
they're going to necessarily, there's not going to be room for them. And maybe there won't be, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of argument to suggest like, you know, you know, there's a lot of inadequacy, you know, as a result of, you know, referral hiring. And so maybe there won't be a job for them. But I think it's something we also have to contend with, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that, you know, it's, it's a, that's also a sense of entitlement as well. When you talk about the referral for job space, like, like you said, maybe there won't be space. Maybe you weren't the, you know, the choice, maybe you're not best for, for the company. And, you know, that's a, a reality that a lot of people uh, have faced. Uh, People have been denied opportunity and so when that that pool of uh, candidates gets bigger, you know, maybe you you don't don't fit the bill. And that's uh, a reality that, um, you know, you have to face. Prem, any final thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely seen that happen firsthand. I think, you know, two, three, four years ago, referral hiring was, you know, getting extremely hot. There's a lot of uh, tools to help with it. You know, I kind of think about it. So to use Eric as an example, as an NFL player, um, athletics in a lot of ways are very much performance based. So if you were to ask Eric to just refer friends that he thinks would be good on the 49ers defensive line, um, that probably isn't as strong of a way of getting a, a good 49ers defensive line as going through the, the process of the draft and the training camps and what's happening now. I think oftentimes, not just from a performance standpoint, but from a diversity standpoint, you're getting more of the same in, in, in some ways. And I think it kind of also ties into, you know, culture fit versus culture add and people you're bringing in, you, if you're a growing organization, by definition, you want to bring in people that are different to help you grow um, more of the same, what in many cases will is, is not really conducive to growing towards a, a culture roadmap that you're going after. So you kind of have to think about where you're at now, where you want to get to, and you know, who can we bring in to challenge us? Who can we bring in to bring different perspectives? Who can we bring in that is going to have diversity in thought and opinion and, and cognitive diversity? So in doing that, you know, myself included, it, we have to challenge ourselves to move beyond our existing network. It's it's very easy to um, focus on bringing in people you know or incentivizing employees to bring in referrals. Referrals aren't bad, but but I think at the same time, they can do damage if you have too much of an emphasis on them in your talent talent acquisition strategy. Yeah, I totally agree. I, uh, there's actually some studies. Uh, Harvard Business Review has a few uh, articles out that show studies that show like companies that are more diverse have higher productivity and have higher profits than those yeah. that don't. And also solve novel pro- problems better, engage less in group think, um, really are able to kind of be more inclusive in general. So, you know, there's a lot of good studies and good data to suggest that it's actually beneficial, but not everyone buys that. Even that they see the data in front of them, they don't necessarily all buy that it's, that it is better because of some of the things we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I think a more long-term approach is investing in communities, underserved communities, investing into black and brown youth um, to broaden the, the pool of candidates in the future. Um, I mean, you could parallel that to sports. If, you know, the NFL didn't have uh, Pop Warner and in, in invest in uh, high school sports and um, kids playing football, these kids wouldn't grow up to be uh, athletes, you know, playing the NFL one day. And so I think uh, companies, a long-term approach can have that approach of investing in these communities, um, piquing kids' interest in what they do, their company, um, and create some some more candidates in the future. That's great. Um, yeah, thanks, Eric. Uh, in closing, just to wrap up, I know I want to be respectful of everyone's time, and I know we've gone a, a little bit over. Uh, I really appreciate everyone coming on. First off, um, Lisa, let's start with you. Uh, and by the way, shout out, Lisa. If, if anyone needs to hire somebody <laughs> to help uh, with executive coaching or organizational psychology, you should hit up Lisa. I'm going to put your contact info on the bottom. <laughs> that's very sweet jesse <laughs> but what's the best way for people to reach out to you or contact you so i have a website dynamic transitions um i also am pretty active on um, instagram at dr orbe austin 
I'm also pretty active also on LinkedIn. I'm a top voice there. So I'm pretty active there. So you can follow me there. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Lisa. Eric, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to learn more about yourself or the Armstead or want to get involved with Armstead Academic Project? Yeah, my they can go to ericarmstead91.com. Also, my socials are uh, Instagram, SACNINA, S-A-C-N-I-N-A 91. And my Twitter is just my name, Eric Armstead. Awesome. I'll make sure to put both those in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and good luck this season. Um, I'll be cheering for you guys. Hopefully we get a, a Super Bowl ring this year. <laughs> or you guys. <laughs> Go Niners. Fran, what's the best way for uh, people to uh, reach out to learn about more about yourself? Great. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Um, you know, it's been a pleasure to, to be with this group. I've, I've learned a lot. You know, I, I think in, in closing, um, I'll, I'll just kind of end it on a, on a positive note. I think there's been a lot of great discussion and action happening um, right now in our country and other countries. So I have a, a lot of faith that we'll, uh, we'll be moving in the right direction and come out um, better than we were. So to contact me, um, you can look me up on Twitter, P-R-E-M-K-U-M-A-R. My first name, last name, Tweets is my handle on Twitter. And then it's um, on LinkedIn. You can look me up as well by my name, Prim Kumar. I'm really excited to connect with anyone. Feel free to also send me an email, just just my first name, P-R-E-M at humanly.io. I'm really excited to continue talking about this. Awesome. Thanks, Prem. Tim, what's yeah. uh, the best way for people to reach out to yourself? You can definitely check me out on LinkedIn. Super active on there, Tim Salau, as well as if you're interested in being a part of our guide beta program, check out guideapp.co. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. I really appreciate everyone's time. Have a great rest of your guys' evening and uh, looking forward to catching up with everyone again soon. This week's episode has now come to an end, but our content doesn't end here. Head over to jessetinsley.com where you can find more valuable resources to hire and keep the ultimate workforce. That's jessetinsley.com.